Welcome. This episode of Inside the Genome is a recent recording of Myriad Oncology Live, a webinar hosted by me, Dr. Thomas Slavin, Chief Medical Officer for Myriad Genetics. The opinions and views expressed in this recording do not necessarily represent those of Myriad Genetics or its affiliates. To participate in a future recording, please visit Myriad Live for a list of dates, times, and subjects. I look forward to exploring the world of genetics with you all. Well, thanks everyone for coming to join us this uh, Monday morning. So good turnout. Um, we are uh, privileged to have some uh, special guests. If this is your first time in Myriad Live, uh, let me start with some housekeeping as always, just to orient everyone uh, to where we're going today. So um, Myriad Live is a uh, webinar that uh, we do about every other week. Uh, that's kind of the goal these days. It's uh, transformed over the years. Um, it was weekly, but I was uh, getting a bit burned out. <laughs> I have uh, a whole team, thank you, team, that uh, really helps pull this together. Shelly Cummings is on today, and uh, she's uh, fantastic. Um, and uh, if you have uh, questions, please send them to her. Uh, this is a uh, really open forum. So, you know, the goal here is just to have discussions, do a little education around certain topics. Um, you see today we're talking about um, hereditary uh, testing for all colorectal cancer patients. Um, you know, definitely unmute yourself, ask whatever you want. We have two experts that I'll introduce in a second on today. Um, and um, uh, you see the topics coming up. But if you don't uh, want to unmute yourself, feel free, send a, send a message to Shelly, um, and she will make sure your question uh, gets addressed. And even if it's off topic, if we have time to address it, that's fine. Uh, we will uh, work in it. We do record these. So uh, that is my cue to make sure that it is recording. It is recording. So um, that's great. And uh, we put them up on Myriad Live. So, uh, or sorry, Inside the Genome. So this is Myriad Live. So Inside the Genome is a uh, podcast that I do. Um, and uh, anything that says Myriad Live is one of these, um, uh, you know, recording from one of the one hour sessions. And then you'll see things that don't say Myriad Live. And that's just me sitting down with uh, usually like one expert in the field, um, you know, talking about a certain aspect of their practice or getting to know, um, you know, what they do and uh, their passion for genetics in healthcare. So uh, we are all in the same mission, drive genomics into uh, clinical practice. That's so exciting. Um, also, I do want to brand new to, uh, to our webpage here. Where is it? So it's so new. I don't even know where it is. We have a new uh, molecular tumor board that uh, we just launched. So this was in partnership with uh, Clarified. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's really, I mean, honestly, this is a world-class molecular tumor board. Um, you will not be disappointed. So uh, it's case-based. We've been covering usually about six cases uh, over an hour. We've, uh, we uh, have just uh, finished the second one. Uh, we do have the audio uh, up as well. You can listen to it right here. So, you know, if you just Google Myriad Live, you can uh, uh, go to this and then the audio for July and August are here. Uh, you can submit a case. Um, you know, this is really around our uh, launch of the precise uh, treatment um, uh, pathway. So we have our comprehensive genomic profile test now um, that's uh, 500 plus genes and then TMB and MSI and pdl one And then we have, um, you know, already had, you know, my choice, which looks at homologous recombination deficiency and all the, the germline testing. So it really is 
pulling together germline, tumor, HRD. So it really has a unique uh, uh, flavor across uh, molecular tumor boards. And you can just register to attend too, if you want. And, and this is going to be a work in progress. We'll, we'll keep, uh, I mean, it's, it's already fantastic, no question. But, you know, as it comes to registering, you know, um, there, we're even talking about different ways. Maybe there's a way to register for all of them so they're on your calendar, things like that. So, and again, this is just brand new. So just, uh, we put it up uh, on this page. And I don't know if it'll permanently live on this page, but uh, good to point out either way. So today... We uh, are talking all colorectal cancer. So, you know, many of you uh, out there have probably seen uh, a change in the recent NCCN guidelines. Um, if you haven't, uh, please check it out uh, on the hereditary familial high risk uh, NCCN guidelines. And, um, you know, the, the pathway in the past was really uh, focused around uh, Lynch syndrome, people meeting, um, you know, hereditary cancer, uh, red flags. Uh, they have since now uh, added a new page uh, to the uh, NCCN guidelines for colorectal cancer um, uh, for the genetic familial high risk, uh, showing a pathway where really anyone now can be considered for hereditary colorectal cancer testing. And that's based on a little bit of backstory that I'll, I'll briefly go through in a second. Uh, full disclosure, I used to sit on that committee, so I know a lot about it. But um, uh, we have two special guests too, to also help with this uh, discussion today. So we have uh, Dr. Whitney Jones. Uh, so, um, you know, Dr. Whitney Jones is, is uh, you know, both, both uh, Dr. Bill Harb and Whitney Jones are thought leaders, um, uh, you know, just uh, fantastic gastroenterologists. Uh, Dr. Whitney Jones is now the senior medical director at Grail. Uh, so very pr privileged to have him. And then we have uh, Dr. Harb, uh, who is a gastroenterologist at Accension. So, uh, really, thank you both uh, for coming on today. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I think what we'll do, uh, just a little backstory, I want to just, you know, kind of prime everyone on a little bit of, uh, you know, how we came to, uh, you know, as a country starting to think about testing uh, all people with colorectal cancer syndrome. And then definitely would just love to hear, you know, your opinions, how you're how you view it, how you're working it into practice. Uh, let's get some, um, you know, people on the line, um, you know, other audience members chipping in, um, you know, with some questions. And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear how people just are, you know, thinking through this. But first, um, I'm going to stop sharing. I'm going to reshare really quick uh, a PowerPoint that I put together. Um, and also, if, if anyone knows me personally, they know I do everything about 90% in my life. I do a lot of things, but they're all about 90%. <laughs> and so this is, this is one of those good examples. <laughs> you can ask my wife. No, but, <laughs> but this is one of those good examples where I, I had good intention and I was trying to put it together, but I just uh, ran out of time a little bit. So in a, in a perfect world, this would be much uh, prettier. Uh, but uh, I at least got the content here uh, so people can look at it. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, there is now this new NCCN, um, you know, category 2B consensus uh, that uh, everyone can be considered for colorectal cancer screening. So even the ones over uh, hereditary germline uh, testing for anyone over 50. Um, and really, like, you know, what led up to that? So I, I uh, you know, put... Uh, a ton of text on this screen. So this is what I apologize for. I wish I would have cleaned it up a little bit. But uh, to, to take a step back, I mean, uh, there's been a lot going on in the field, um, you know, and uh, I think 
you know, when, when we think about hereditary cancer, um, you know, and who's the right person to test. And I'm, I'm saying even beyond colorectal cancer, a lot of the times, um, you know, it's really, well, what is the prevalence in an unselected population? And that is crucial to the conversation because a lot of um, studies leading up to, um, uh, you know, all comer or, you know, like we, how we think about pancreatic cancer. Now everyone, you know, needs hereditary cancer testing or ovarian cancer, for instance, you know, these were, these were, um, you know, especially ovarian. Uh, and I think the NCCN somewhere around 2006 or so, you know, started doing uh, all recommendation for uh, all uh, ovarian cancer to get hereditary cancer testing somewhere around 2006. I don't know for sure, but um, there at that time, I mean, it was very obvious that a lot of people with ovarian cancer had a significant prevalence of uh, germline mutations and high penetrance genes. So like BRCA1, BRCA2 in particular. Um, some of that also was seen a bit in studies um, in pancreatic cancer. But the problem is, you know, until about, you know, really like five, eight years ago, you know, yeah, probably about then. Yeah, probably honestly, five years ago, there just weren't a ton of studies in unselected populations. So meaning that the studies that we had to say, you know, people with pancreatic cancer have X rate of mutations, they were based largely on uh, registries that were, were collected for familial cancer risk. So uh, meaning that, you know, these were like, Johns Hopkins accrued a large registry and, um, you know, but those people under, you know, with Gloria Peterson at Mayo and these kind of folks, I mean, you know, it was, it was, uh, you know, a lot of people had first degree family members or second degree family members with pancreatic cancer. So it's not really like, you know, that, that complete translation to the average population of people with pancreatic cancer. And so what's been going on the last few years, uh, especially with tumor testing coming along, and uh, you know, now a lot of uh, you know, places are doing tumor normal on the academic setting, we're starting to finally get that data. Like, okay, when it's a cancer center and people are walking in the door, um, you know, what kind of hereditary cancer rates are we seeing um, in these individuals? And now we're actually starting to get that data. So a lot has really come out in the past few years on colorectal cancer. And needless to say, I mean, even when you look at high penetrant genes, uh, so, you know, that are well associated with uh, colorectal cancer. So this was a, a good study here. This, um, you know, Yerglin, Matt Yerglin study was one of the first ones on a big unselected uh, group. Um, you know, even when you look at just some of the, the APC, CHECK2, TP53, so things that are really actionable in Lynch syndrome, you still had a pretty good hit rate. If you take everyone, yeah, I think in that paper, they had like 11%, but that would include, you know, MUTE-YH carriers or BRCA1 and 2, where, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, clearly, it's important to find a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, but it's, you know, did you find it because it was just incidental? You know, I'm talking about genes that are associated uh, very clearly with colorectal cancer. And I think there's still always some verdict out on, you know, BRCA1 and 2, for instance. So, but even when you look at that, you still see a pretty good uh, rate uh, floating around. And I would say, you know, anything 5% or above, or, you know, framing the context of um, ovarian cancer, for instance, uh, or pancreatic cancer. I mean, we tend to think of those kind of rates. I mean, ovarian is the highest, but pancreatic cancer uh, sits usually uh, somewhere in that realm as well. Um, and there's just been a whole host, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna belabor all these, but there's been a lot of studies coming out, um, you know, and you see some of just how recent they are, you know, 2017, 2020, um, you know, 2020, uh, this Mandecker one, 2017, there was just a paper on a Memorial Sloan Kettering that I didn't even get to dive into yet on the colorectal cancer rate, but uh, for like, you know, strong actionable genes. But even when you're really looking at 
you know, what would be the hereditary genes that um, we're seeing that would actually change care? The rates you start seeing are pretty high. I mean, you know, this one, this Matt Yerlin one, again, remains a bit uh, inflated, um, you know, because of MeetYH and some of these other genes. But you see, even when you pull those genes out, you're, you, it's become obvious that people with colorectal cancer have a much higher rate of, um, you know, germline mutations than we were previously ex expecting. And I think, you know, this is also being now looked at in breast cancer and some of these other things, but, you know, clearly colon, the, the, the data is looking uh, much more consistent that people have uh, these unselected groups are uh, above 5%. Um, and, uh, you know, other things that are going on, you know, at the same time as those papers, there's, there's papers on the other side saying, well, you know, MSI and IUC misses people. There was a really big paper um, if people hadn't seen by Rachel Perlman, um, you know, under Heather Hample's group at uh, Ohio State showing, you know, that there was a significant amount of people missed uh, with Lynch syndrome. So if you do a universal IEC MSI strategy, they missed 6.3% of people in the Ohio Link study uh, that had uh, Lynch syndrome germline mutation. Um, you know, the whole concept of, you know, and then you're going to find these other genes. And then the whole concept of Lynch-like has really evolved over the years. Um, so it's become very obvious that, um, you know, originally, you know, you'd have somebody with a loss of, uh, you know, immunohistochemistry staining and you'd go on this diagnostic odyssey and you try to figure out why, what's going on. And, you know, you do MLH1 hypermethylation or BRAF or whatever it was. And you try to figure out if, if uh, you know, they had Lynch syndrome or they didn't. And then you a lot of times get stuck and you'd say, well, you know, this doesn't look like a Lynch syndrome family, but I can't explain X, Y, and Z. And now we're realizing if you sequence the tumor on these, um, a lot of these individuals, you can find that second hit. So you can see that the tumor had two hits and it explains the MSI or IUC, and this is not Lynch syndrome. So that's been going on. Um, and I mean, so I, I think just overall as a field, um, you know, we've really been moving towards, um, at least personally, I'll speak for myself personally. I think that the field has moved much more over the last few years to, you need to have a germline mutation really to definitively say someone has Lynch syndrome in particular. Um, and we, we've really moved away from that Lynch like Lynch like syndrome. So, um, the, uh, but there are cons to all this. And, you know, again, I won't belabor all this, but this is a nice paper. So again, Heather Hample, Matt Yerglin, excellent paper in JCO, uh, you know, just came out. So pretty hot off the press and you can see some of the pros and cons, um, you know, and some of them, um, uh, you know, are very legitimate, obviously. And, you know, what kind of burden is it going to be on the health system? Um, you know, we're, we already have some good, you know, immunohistochemistry is actually pretty good already or MSI. So, you know, these are some of the things that I think led to that consider thought. Now, again, I'm not on that committee, uh, so I can't speak for them anymore, but, um, you know, uh, um, you know, as someone that formerly used to be on that uh, committee, I, I, I do think, yeah, there's, there's things in there to, to consider. Uh, and so some of these cons uh, need to be weighted uh, very seriously. But at the same time, you know, we have implemented universal screening for uh, germline testing for pancreatic, for ovarian, and we figured out as a health system how to uh, make that work. And, you know, we really do want to make sure that uh, we're not missing people with these uh, mutations. So I, I will stop there and um, let's you know, see if anyone has any questions. I would love, you know, Dr. Jones, Dr. Harb, you know, what, what do you think about um, you know, all this and, you know, where the field's going, you know, what, what are the kind of things that you're seeing? Um, maybe 
whoever whoever wants to chime in first would love to just hear hear your perspective i think i think the field's going um more and more towards uh universal testing i mean you can see the you can see the committee they're almost there um and i think as they as they get there that really that removes a lot of barriers you know the barriers of uh, that started out with Amsterdam criteria and then moved to Bethesda criteria of, of such as, well, who should get immunohistochemistry? And then, well, these with abnormal immunohistochemistry should get germline testing. And then mm -hmm. we're almost to the point where everyone with colorectal cancer should get germline testing. Um, and they almost made it all the way there, but but not quite. Um, and so I, I guess if you I guess if you look in your crystal ball um, five years down the road, I guess you, I, can, I can see a scenario where everyone's getting tested. Um, well, let me rephrase that. I see a scenario where there's a recommendation that everyone's getting tested. Mm. And I hope we're getting to the point where everyone's getting tested. But I think we're a, a long ways from getting that done just because of some roadblocks with 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 providers in general. Yeah. And we oh, go ahead, Dr. John. I was going to say, yeah. And I agree. You know, when you look at the old pathways to make these diagnoses, you know, they were so difficult. No, no physician or clinician could take it. And I think the data is really accumulating and it's been grown by the somatic testing in the cancer space, right? That's become almost mm -hmm. universal. So to really use genomics on the front end to figure out, you know, why they have it. And then I also think the linkage to therapy is key, right? Now it's not just why do they have this cancer, but what are we going to do about it? I think that's going to drive, drive this space. And I don't think we should forget about the fact that when we do identify these serious germline issues, we have the potential to help family members really drive their prevention piece of this. I think, I think the further we dive just into therapy and treatment, the further we get away from, you know, that prevention piece that really is critical, you know, two or three people per Lynch or some of these syndromes, we can help them in a preventative and early detection fashion if we know that that genome is running in their family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. We have to get better at cascade testing for sure. That's a, that's another, I think, universal challenge to us as a as a group. Um, yeah, I mean, how, how have you seen people? Um, have either one of you, um, you know, as gastroenterologists, seen people um, integrate uh, more of a universal germline testing pathway since I, either before or since these kind of guidelines came out? Well, I, I've not seen as many people uh, use germline testing universally, but certainly I had used it in my practice. If you had colon cancer, I was going to push as hard as I could do to find a germline test based on some of these solid organ tumor data that was coming out. And, and again, even some of the low penetrant mutations, I think, have value. Uh, but in terms of uh, the broader piece, you know, we're really looking in Kentucky. We're in the midst of a study repeating what Heather did and looking at our hospital systems with our registry data to see how many people are, you know, doing MSI, MMR testing universally. And we're getting some preliminary good pieces back that both in rural hospitals and, and others that people are complying. But I think that next step is really linking that genetic testing, you know, to the, to the, the staining and MSR. So I, I think we're getting there. And I think we're, we're really in the molecular age. I still think there's this huge gap between mm -hmm. the science and then the translation to the clinical you know, uh, effect. And again, paradoxically, it's the somatic testing of cancers that are probably going to push this forward yeah. more. Uh, you know, when we're all in the prevention space, as well as diagnostics, you know, all of a sudden, it, you know, it would be bizarre for someone not to get their tumor tested, particularly with advanced stage disease. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what yeah, do you think? What about, yeah, what do you think, Bill? 
Uh, no, as a as a colorectal surgeon, we're seeing more and more, um, more and more, um, and not so much universal. But I guess I'm always looking for a reason to test somebody or a reason not not to test somebody, and kind of I I try and default to testing everybody and um, and trying to find a reason not to test people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even even in like breast cancer and things, I mean, there's been some op eds about like now it's almost becoming who not to test, you know, with right. things like Olympia coming out and. Um, you know, any really high risk, um, you know, breast cancer, all triple negative. So, I mean, it's just the, the field continues just to, to push. And then we already have for breast cancer, like the American, uh, society of breast surgeon guidelines, you know, really advocating for that, uh, some years ago, uh, just go, go forth and try to test everyone. So it, it is interesting to see how the fields, um, uh, been, um, you know, just, just catching up, uh, in a sense of, you know, the, the concept that, yeah, we probably need to be doing more than we are. So. Um, let's pause there. Um, any, uh, questions? I need to take a peek at their chat. Um, oh, I see, uh, Monique, uh, you, you put in a, um, oh yeah, that was good the, uh, about, uh, Heather Hampel and, uh, Matt Yerglin, uh, the discussion on universal testing, they did kind of a pros and cons thing. Um, so thank you for putting that on. Um, any, any questions from anyone? I, I haven't received any questions. Yeah, let's just pause for a second, just so people can, if there's something on their mind. No, I do think that the um, going more towards universal testing will hopefully streamline care for our patients in that, you know, you get a, you get an initial biopsy that says adenocarcinoma, and then, then you're waiting a couple of days to get IHC done, and then you're getting IHC done, and then, well, um, it's abnormal, and then you got to get germline testing, and so yeah. hopefully we can, we can cut a little bit of that out and, um, and streamline the process for our patients. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I want to add to that. I, I think it's really critical. Just what you said, Bill, is, is the earlier we get this information, the better we can manage that first phase of care. And I think people, you know, uh, you know, if you're dealing with a hereditary syndrome versus just a, uh, you know, off the shelf colorectal cancer, that, that, that may be a completely different approach, or at least a consideration and discussion with the patient. Including additional screening preoperatively for other malignancies, synchronous tumors. Totally agree. Totally agree. And it's um, it's unfortunate when um, it's it's the oncologist who thinks about genetic testing, and the patients already had, for instance, they had a sequel cancer and they had a, a right hemicolectomy, and and they missed their chance to have a total abdominal colectomy if they're uh, past their childbearing years. They uh, she's missed her chance to have a prophylactic uh, hysterectomy and oophorectomy. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I have a so question you... for Dr. Barb and Dr. Jones. Sorry, TJ, for interrupting. No, no. Please. Yes. Uh, so I'm wondering in the GI space, how practitioners are ordering genetic testing. Like, do you agree with the pan cancer approach or is it more of a single syndrome or colorectal panel hmm, type that's a good of question approach. and i Perfect. guess you're you're specific to germline probably there yes yeah for it's me i went germline i went to panel testing um a long time ago and that was just easier um i think matt yergelin's data does a good job showing that it's not just lynch syndrome that we're that we're looking for but we're finding other things and so i went to panel testing uh, a while back and um with some insurers that does seem to make a difference you know if you kind of get your one shot and if one's abnormal then you're going back and asking for another and so i think most of us have gone to panel testing whitney yeah i i think that's a great I, 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 the big issue with panel testing is of course that 
you know, not only do you, you, you go across the colorectal, but many people have other mutations that are going to not necessarily impact your colorectal approach, but may in fact, uh, you know, invest in other preventative services as well as again, cascade testing. So I, I think we live in a panel world now for all of the parts that aren't great about it. I think they're rare and few and far between, but they're real. I think the broader piece is if we're going to manage someone's cancer risk longitudinally, and, and they're already across that finish line for having a cancer, the more information we have, I believe, the better. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, yes, I, I think panel testing is for sure, you know, here to stay. So, so we have a couple like a, the more the better. The more the better. I don't know the more the better, but I think uh, <laughs> the more good, the more better, the more accurate, the more better, right? I'm not for a thousand panel gene of, you know, research uh, related issues, but I think once they've crossed that clinical threshold I, I, and they're actionable and they can have some uh, impart on that, that cascade piece and that family piece, which I think we should never forget. Uh, you know, I, I think it's important. Yeah, more information is better right now. Thank you. We have a few questions in the chat. Um, so for um, Dr. Jones and Harb, um, there was a discussion, Not it was more of a statement than a, uh, a question, but I'd like to hear your perspectives on it. Um, Bit of pro, uh, proposed, if we use the same approach for universal IHC and MSI um, testing to be part of like the, the pre-surgical packet, um, and would there be informed consent around that? Because that gives a lot of information on what the next steps might be and what that looks like uh, in your practice. I think that's a that's a great question, Bita. Um, I don't have the answer to that, unfortunately. That's that, that's I guess that's the million dollar question, right? I mean, we could we could obviously test everyone, um, you know, as soon as they were diagnosed, and um, but yeah, I think there would be some uh, real lack of informed consent with that. Um, I, I agree. I think the informed consent becomes an issue, but for those who are worried about their insurance issues, and that's part of this informed consent piece, the cat's out of the bag when you have a cancer diagnosis, right? You can't, you can't, you can't hold that off when you're applying for life insurance. So I, I really do think eventually, you know, we're, we're going to get, you know, to this place where uh, clearly you know, if there's implications beyond the genomics about treatment, we'll need to have that immediately. But I think we will up the stage and we need it systematically. We have the worst mm -hmm. logistics around this in the world, right? You know, various folks scope them and then they refer them in for treatment and our oncology and somewhere along the road that that ball gets dropped lots of times. And it isn't until our oncologic colleagues you know, are, are looking at the, you know, the actual somatic testing that anyone sort of come up. So I, I think we need a real systematic approach along the lines of what we've tried to do with uh, uh, immunohistochemical staining and MMR. So I, I like it. And again, I think there's always going to be that one or two or maybe 5% of people for whom that consent issue is real. But think how many people we're not serving on the other side because we don't have a systematic approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess I guess it, I guess I see at some point where everyone with um, on the cancer side, where everyone gets presented at multidisciplinary tumor boards, um, and that will hopefully change things. Mm -hmm. That's obviously not addressing the the unaffected, mm -hmm. but yeah, and some of that that's interesting about you know you know what is the future of uh, universal immunohistochemistry and microsatellite instability? I mean, are we just going to keep doing it? 
uh, at institutions. Um, you know, obviously, if people are getting larger panels now, like NGS panels, that's becoming pretty, you know, standard as part of it. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how now even that those kind of systems that and it's not like hospitals were 100%, you know, by any means, or, um, you know, all doing it. And there's been you know, that, that was part of the reason, too, that I, I think, you know, there was a push towards, you know, can we uh, have a little bit looser language for germline testing? Because, you know, even with all the push over the last, you know, decade and a half for universal germline testing or universal, sorry, immune histochemistry and uh, microscopic instability <laughs> testing, we were just not there as a country. I mean, you know, I think publications were showing at best, you know, we were kind of floating around a 70%, um, you know, kind of, kind of realm. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. Will, will that stay? I don't, I don't know if you know, if people on the line see, see value doing that independently, or if they think, you know, this is probably now all part of more, um, you know, comprehensive NGS type panels. Yeah. So there's a couple questions I'm going to combine together um, that are a little bit along that line. Um, well, not really. Um, the, there's a two questions that is about the discussions that happen um, before testing is done. Um, genetic testing, not so much uh, somatic testing or tumor testing. Um, and does that pretest counseling include um, in your practices potential cost discussions? Because that's a that's a real uh, um, issue, as well as um, when it comes to accessing genetic counselors, um, it is that sometimes viewed as a bottleneck for those clinicians that are comfortable ordering or uncomfortable, excuse me, ordering on their own? And how do, how do we navigate that um, issue? Right, well, I'll start on that. I mean, I, you know, I, I universally, if you were coming in for a screening colonoscopy with me, I would have already done a cancer family history on a tablet. So if you met criteria, I would have already recommended it before you went to sleep. And certainly post-diagnosis of a colon cancer, <clears throat> that would have been a discussion we would have had in the recovery room immediately, you know, to, to accelerate that process because uh, I was trying to roll them into the surgeon. So, uh, you know, I, I think our biggest issues are logistics, really. I think we've got to eventually come together on a simple logistical pathway to where this is never being missed, uh, you know, because I do think it's really critical to care. The real role in the future of, of uh, staining MMR and, and, and is, is, is it going to impact therapy, because I think we, we've got to eventually get to universal germline testing is the way. And then anything else that affects therapy down the road, once they get the bill, you know, will probably become part of that. But we, right now we have a logistical issue. Uh, we, we're not lacking tech. We're lacking mm -hmm. logistics to get it done on a, on a, on a consistent basis. Well, and yeah, and I guess we're lacking implementation of implementation of, of tech. I mean, there's there's all this data in all of our EHRs. And, you know, why is it that when someone gets a, a colon cancer diagnosis that the EHR doesn't look through and say, oh, you've got a family history and uh, and print off a, a test requisition form? I mean, maybe we get to that one day. But um, I guess back back to back to the question of informed consent. Um for me, informed consent involves a few different things. Um, I talk about cost issues with patients. I talk about changes in medical management, be that um, hysterectomies for, for positive patients, be that increased um, surveillance with colonoscopy. Um, we talk about testing of, of at-risk relatives, which um, which especially the colon cancer patients are, are really keen on talking about. Uh, we talk about insurance discrimination, 
um, which which changes a little bit based on age for patients. Um, it's certainly I don't see a lot of the the young unaffected, but um, I, I do see some of those. And so, uh, and genetic genetic counseling and genetic uh, testing, genetic counseling for me usually is uh, is involved in for patients who are positive, but occasionally I have patients who are who um, before testing they'd like to talk to someone, and I'm hopeful that telemedicine is really going to make a a difference with that as it has in my practice. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Now, and, and telemedicine and, and the different ways we can, yeah, screen people, you know, with all the technologic solutions coming down. I mean, yeah, it's just now it's like, how do we execute, you know, it's to make sure that people aren't being missed um, in some fashion. Um, yeah, it's it's very exciting though. I mean, overall, uh, and I'm curious to see how this uh, need for MSI and I see at uh, local centers plays out. If it's not part of um, um, you know a bigger comprehensive genomic profile, um, yeah, just much much to do, much to work out how to implement a lot of this. I'm looking at uh, Amy. Um, yeah, that was a nod to the uh, video education and digital uh, consent. So yes, thank you. Yes, and pretest counseling. We've been yeah talking about that. So I think uh, we addressed that too, Kathleen. So thanks. Hey, hey TJ, can I, can I ask Bill a, a question? Because he's right down there underneath me in uh, Tennessee, and I'm up there in Kentucky. And you know, probably doesn't shock him that. You know, we're seeing a ton of early age onset colorectal cancer, particularly mm-hmm. in the southeast. And we did a back of the napkin analysis about a year ago. If you look at the 20 states that have the highest burden of colon cancer overall, 17 of those also have the highest burden for under age 50 colorectal cancer. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious how Bill was approaching the EAO CRC population differently, you know, sort of, you know, knowing that they certainly have these higher risks for germline mutations. And do you change your approach at the colorectal surgical level at all uh, with these folks? No, not not too much. Um, I mean, they all they all. Um, it, I recommend germline genetic testing for all of them. Uh, most of these are, uh, as you know, are left sided tumors and rectal cancers in particular. Yep. They do uh, statistically have a lower instance of being Lynch positive, um, but I do try and encourage germline testing for most of those and, and most of the, for all of those and most of those uh, do get that before surgery. Are you seeing, um, are either one of you seeing uh, gastroenterologists uh, uh, order a lot of tumor testing uh, now, like the larger comprehensive genomic profiles or like trying to pair those with the germline? No, I, I'm not seeing gastroenterologists engaging. I think that's really down at the level of the colorectal surgeon and the oncologist mm-hmm. where that's happening. I mean, heck, we're trying to get gastroenterologists to do the genomic testing when someone has a cancer. Yeah. I think the I think the interpretation of those somatic profiles, uh, you know, that's that's clearly going to be behind the oncologist door and in the colorectal surgery door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I think you know you're going to see as obviously part of this. I mean, just a. a more consistent pairing of the two. So, um, you know, it's, it's not really a surprise that, you know, Myriad being a, a germline genetic testing company, we've been, um, you know, thinking more about the tumor because, you know, the future is really, you know, both of these to a large extent together, uh, you know, being able to have expertise both on the tumor side, but then also, um, you know, be able to answer those hard germline questions. Um, 
and it's yeah, it was exciting to see. Um, you know, when we um, when this news came out, we are doing an expanded access programming for the germline testing side. So we're we're really trying to lead the charge. Um, you know, partly because I think it's the right thing to do too, <laughs> and many people at the country company do uh, to just uh, yeah send us all the the colorectal folks for uh, hereditary cancer testing, and we'll um, you know work towards getting it covered and everything. So um, it's going to be just exciting to see how this all implements over time. Right. And there was a there was a quote a question in the chat for maybe about this starting in endoscopy, and I think that's really important. I think GI quick and some of these reporting mechanisms where we're capturing data at the time of endoscopy, you know, I, I think we need to be thinking about how do we, you know, add a tab that automatically pops up that, you know, if you've got a cancer diagnosis, it ought to populate the plans before that person leaves that to have that discussion or at least make mm -hmm. that get that started. Because I'm all about the timeline with a person with a cancer diagnosis, because my goal is to get them staged, get them in the right hands. And if I can get that done in less than a couple of weeks, I feel that's where they want to be. So it's critical timing wise to get that started. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I like your point. I like your suggestion about GI adding that to GI quick. I think that'd be a great idea. So we have a um, we semi touched upon this question um, earlier about the shift in thinking about who not to test rather than looking at guidelines on who to test. Um, and Jordan has asked, um, you know, with the changes in the guidelines and uh, fewer barriers to get uh, genetic counseling services and the video and telehealth, you know, is there any affected colorectal patient that you can think of um, that you wouldn't want to run a germline or uh, do tumor profiling on? I guess older patients with uh, with limited families would be one uh, one one scenario. I mean, I've had some colon cancer patients in their seventies and they have no kids and no siblings, and so that's uh, that's one uh, scenario. Um, that's the first one that that kind of pops to mind, I guess. Uh, and then I I guess just older patients in general um, with limited families. I mean, if they obviously if they've got um, if they have other, if they have, if they have kids and, and siblings, I'm more likely to order. Mm -hmm. I, I guess that would be my only two. But again, if they're, even if they're a little older, I mean, remember all of us with gray hair now, the, you know, right. 75 is the new 65 and a lot of longevity going on out there. And particularly when we identify genetic syndromes, the possibility of, you know, second cancers being diagnosed, I think does play into the preventative part of that. I mean, you know, when we're screening people who are high risk for a certain process, turns out we end up diagnosing them with other cancers more frequently than we do with the cancer we're looking for. So I, I love that broad net approach when we're looking at risk. And uh, so I, I, I agree with Bill, there'd be a few rare cases that might pop in that, that elder elderly person with no family whatsoever. Uh, but short of that, I, I feel like more information is, is, is critical. I think of some histologies or something, um, you know, like neuroendocrine, I think we still need more data on, but, you know, that's not a large, you know, most of colorectal cancers, uh, adenocarcinoma. And then I think of, uh, you know, a little, you know, tangential, but, you know, uh, squamous rectal cancer, for instance, um, you know, most of that's going to be viral uh, mediated, um, you know, very few, unless there's like a really strong family history of uh, colorectal cancer or something. Those are, those are great examples. I, I, I concur with those. I would not be probably looking there. Yeah, no, that was good. Well, I mean, um, you know, one, 
One thing uh, to, to go back, I mean, um, thinking about IHC and MSI, I mean, um, you know, one, one part of my personal practice that I've really struggled with over the last uh, 10 to 15 years has been this diagnostic odyssey for patients. So I, I think one of the most exciting things is, is seeing, um, you know, a pathway where, um, you know, patients are not being bogged down anymore because, you know, I, uh, I mean, so many patients, um, um, you know, I've seen that, you know, had abnormal IHC in particular, because, you know, that's just most of the institutions I worked, uh, do IHC over, uh, MSI as universal testing. And, uh, you know, you, you get that abnormal, um, you know, IHC and, you know, this person just got diagnosed with colorectal cancer. So now you're, you're bringing them in and you're, you're trying to sort it out and you're doing the, the methylation. You're, you know, you're, you're looking to see if they had uh, BRAF testing and then you're trying to figure out if you need to do tumor sequencing for all these other things. And, um, you know, you're calling patients back and the methylation costs a ton of money. And, you know, you're trying to figure out how to get it paid for to figure out if they're, you know, this, uh, you know, 75 year old person with, um, you know, an MLH1 loss of MLH1 and PMS2 is uh, just sporadic, um, you know, MMR uh, in the tumor deficiency in the tumor. And it's just, it's so nice to now know that there's another pathway, you know, where, um, you know, you're not belaboring the situation. Um, you know, I've really, the last few years personally, I've been kind of saying, um, my own mantra is a little be really changed a bit and it's become a little bit more, you know, if you want to know if someone has a germline Lynch syndrome, you need to do germline genetics. I mean, you know, you can do other things and you can try to get to it, but it's, you know, um, I really haven't been impressed by, um, you know, especially today's germline testing with Boland inversions and all the things that we're, we're pretty good at doing. Um, there's not a ton of patients uh, by any means falling through the cracks. If you do germline testing, we're usually identifying those individuals. I'm not saying don't be suspicious still, if there's a strong family history of cancer, or maybe there's other people in the family that you need to test, even if your patient tests negative, but yeah, this whole concept of of Lynch, Lynch, like, uh, I think it's a, it's just a real struggle. And this is coming from someone that's even written papers, you know, with the word Lynch, Lynch like in it. I, I just think that we needed to have all this other data and it's just so nice to see, you know, the, the unselected cohort data really coming in with the telemedicine and, uh, you know, the tech solutions and everything's really coming together at this pinnacle to, to lead the, to these kind of, uh, increases in access. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think everybody's always questioning and that you always bring up those one or two percents, you know, that might not be right for, but really what we're looking at is the streamlining and confluence for an elegantly simple approach, mm -hmm. right? Which is a germline testing why, you know, somatic testing how. And, and I, I think that's going to be much more easy to integrate at the practice level where we're, again, not necessarily in research institutes or universities, but, you know, it's your community or local hospital. So I think we're going to be there. I think we're I think we're clearly in this space. All you have to do for clinicians is put up the old pathway yeah. <laughs> and say, and it's like Amsterdam, like you said, Bill. Right. I mean, how many clinicians really did an Amsterdam level <laughs> history and physical on folks? Right. And the answer is probably less than five percent. And those were in study situations. So I love it. It's elegant. It's going to help clinicians. And I think uh, although there potentially be a few people out of 100 that have to be sorted out with other patients, I think it's uh, I, I think we're really going to be in that driver's seat with that approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Where do you think the future of all this is going? I mean, um, you know, Dr. Jones, you work for Grail now. I mean, yeah. I, what do, what do you think uh, when it comes to 
you know, colorectal screen or identifying Lynch carriers? I mean, what's, what, what are the things that you're, you're uh, thinking and, and seeing out there? Well, I, I personally see us being able to, I, I sort of think there's like an oncologist door or bill an onco oncologic surgeon door there. And I think we're going to see germline testing as well as risk. Uh, you know, really what, what, what the gallery test does is look at, you know, a snapshot of methylation to see if cancer patterns are present. So that's a, that's really a snapshot now, a Polaroid at that moment. I still think germline testing and anything we can do to move that upstream to better understand not only genomic risk, but down the road, I think we'll be understanding non-genomic risk better. And I think that'll drive folks into appropriate prevention strategies and allow us to do the best job. From my standpoint, I think the other big issue is we can't start talking about this when people have cancer, just like screening. If you want to get someone screened, you have to talk to them years in advance of that yeah. time you want them to do that. And I think we have to do the exact same thing with family history, learning from our, our great friends and breast cancer and, and everything, and really make the cancer educational journey a, a younger one, starting earlier, continuing on through those years and broadening it because I think, I, you know, I'm a prevention guy, right? I'm not as much a treatment guy down the road. I'm, I'm sort of, at, I'm not out of, the, out of the picture, but I'm not managing that cancer piece. So I think the whole genomic space, I think we're in the molecular age of medicine now. And I want to see that confluence of that front of the oncologist door space mm -hmm. to not only be risk, but genomic risk, as well as uh, earlier strategies for asymptomatic detection based on mm -hmm. other, uh, other, other platforms. Have you seen the gastroenterology societies? Um, I mean, what are you what are you getting from um, that side of things? I mean, is there is there more a realization of, of uh, this risk conversation and a discussion of implementing, um, you know, protocols like in colonoscopy suites and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's certainly coming up, and we've got some really active societies in genetics. You know, the CGA, IGC. You know, we've got a group of folks in the Americas who are looking at this. I, I think one of my big concerns is that people are so constrained with the practice demands right now that we've not been able to break through on some of the educational as well as implementation pieces because their schedules, I mean, docs are working their tail off, right? I mean, and they're, they're going home and charting for two or three hours. And I think it's really hard to think that we're going to expand either systems or knowledge when we have not figured out a way to have technology lessen their burden. In fact, it's unfortunately probably increased the burden. So I think that's some of that gap between what's available and what people are really learning about and, and implementing into their practice situations. But I think the GI, pan, GI groups are all over the genomic piece. You know, the, uh, the uh, multi-cancer piece is new and we're working on that educational piece going out there. But I really see this as a continuum uh, broadly. And I think that's how we should approach it educationally. And I think we all need to invest dramatically in the education of medical students, residents, and fellows about this new molecular part of medicine that really for a lot of us who are out, we came back secondarily and learned all this stuff. Uh, probably not Bill. He's pretty young. I can't, I've not met him, but looks pretty young over there on the end of, end of the line. But we've got a real challenge. So this we don't have this gap in the future in education for people who are in training right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, good point. I mean, how do you how do you think this needs to get out there, Dr. Harb? I mean, what are some of the things you've seen or you think there's some silver bullets that we should be doing? No, I I I I mean, I've been involved in this space for about 12, 14 years or so and um and it it just seems like there's 
there's barriers with um there's barriers with pretest counseling there's barriers with ordering ordering tests uh some of those are starting to come down i mean um i like how um i like how i'm able to do a lot of this virtually with telemedicine. I like how I'm able to just order a kit that be sent to their house and they send it back in the, in the mail um, to have it, to have it tested. I think that's part of the, um, I think that does break down some, some of the barriers as far as uh, time in office. Um, But there's still just barriers as far as uh, not only, I guess not so much knowledge about Lynch syndrome, although that's that's part of it, but not knowledge about how to implement this into a practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And you know, to that to that later point, I mean, you know, just even having that resource network, I mean, that is not easy to build up either. Um, you know, knowing that you know you brought up THBSOs, you know, for instance, for for women with Lynch syndrome, you know, so having even uh, those kind of uh, networks amongst providers and who do I even talk to? Like, is the, my gynecologist even going to know what Lynch syndrome is or, you know, my, you know, is there an expert in the area that can, you know, focus on this for instance? Yeah. And for me, I mean, those, those networks weren't too difficult to, to build. I, I get occasional pushback of, well, you know, I don't, I don't manage um, urinary tract cancers. And my answer is, well, I don't either, but I know urologists who do. And so, you know, mm-hmm. if you order a CT scan and it shows a, um, a mass in the lung, well, I don't do lung cancer, but I know who to send it to. And so right. um, that's been my pushback on that. Yeah, and that's mm-hmm. sort of the barrier for some folks, again, you know, around, you know, particularly uh, uh, empiric genetic testing, not even affected folks, is that, you know, they've always been nervous about finding that mutation that's not in their roundhouse. And Bill and I would both agree. I mean, we didn't get rid of CAT scans because it was a renal tumor instead of diverticular right. disease, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I, so, I know someone who takes care of that. So I'm with Bill on that. I think it's just about, you know, I, I think the more we can systematize this and, again, lower those payment barriers, lower some of those insurance obstacles around consenting. And, you know, again, people still worry. The biggest thing people worry about in my world, life insurance, that that's the, continues to be the biggest driver, you know, when, when people are hesitant around the genomic test, particularly the unaffected, the affected are, you know, they don't really have that. They've got other issues at hand, you yeah. know, when they're staring down the, the a cancer diagnosis. But I think, I think this is going to be the system. There's no way that it's going to be other than that, because it's simple, it's elegant, it's, uh, impactful clinically, and then it potentially is impacting even a bit greater group of folks that we can, you know, bring prevention earlier upstream when we when we need it the most for folks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, good points. And uh, Shelly, I see you put in uh, the CGA and the insight. So yeah, lots of um, yeah, it's going to be exciting to see at those meetings, you know, how this is being discussed and how people are, um, you know, some of the thought leaders are are thinking through it. Um, but yeah, as you're hearing here, I mean, tons of implementation uh, left to be done and, um, you know, trying to think about you know, how to systematize this. Um, any other questions? I'm going to um, share my screen. We're almost at time. Um, I do want to be respectful. Let me uh, move, um, actually, real quick, just moving some screens around. Um, so, we have, um, you know, just to bring up, we have uh, two more uh, meetings coming up. So we have uh, in September uh, that are on the board. So you see them here. So we're going to talk about equity and breast cancer, um, genetic testing that's coming up uh, mid-September. 
Um, and then we're going to um, be talking about um, advances in ovarian cancer treatment and clinical trial matching. So that's going to be really exciting. So um, we're going to have uh, folks with clarity here as well for that one. Um, and uh, this one is going to be uh, Dr. Ify Stitt and uh, Haywood Brown, I believe. Um, um, so still uh, finalizing some um, back backstory there. But yeah, that, this should be a really nice one. Uh, and they wanted to present some research uh, that they've uh, been working on. Um, but let me take a pause here. Um, and any other questions for our excellent esteemed guests, Dr. Jones and Dr. Harb? This has been really exciting conversation. And uh, I love to see the field moving. Um, you know, a lot of times we talk about research and this is just now translation right now. So honestly, like really most of what we've been talking about is how to implement. Uh, this is what's been brought up. So I think the, the research now is, is looking good. Uh, so now it's, you know, how do we execute, get it in the clinic, make sure patients aren't being missed. Yeah, and, and TJ, I'll just say too, you know, the key to a lot of these systems, if we're really going to narrow gaps in care, you know, from, you know, what we've seen over the last several years, it's come more to our attention systematizing these issues are critical. And that's gonna be not only in the treatment and diagnostic space for molecular abnormalities and genetic abnormalities, but all the way upstream there. You know, We've got a lot of work to do. Systems help break down barriers and they help narrow gaps in care. And so we can't, yeah. and again, it's not necessarily always a racial issue. Many times it's demographic in the Southeast. We clearly know we have heavy, strong burdens that aren't strictly you know, racial in nature. And, We've again a big study just came out about cervical cancer. Advanced stage came out dramatically increased in Caucasian women. So I think we have to use this new technology and these new systems as ways to really bring quality care and prevention as well, not just care, to the entire uh, sector that we serve out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, no question. Well. Thank you, Dr. Harb. Thank you, Dr. Jones, for coming on today uh, and sharing your expertise and your vision and, and you know um, how you've seen it implemented in practice, where you think things are going. Uh, it's really just an exciting time right now in the hereditary colorectal field. And then you know you pair that with all that's going on on the NGS side and the realization that we need uh, to be you know uh, grinding up tumors, doing comprehensive genomic profiling, figure out how to treat people the best. And then we're looking now at the more at the intersection between, um, you know, uh, even in the translational atmosphere of the intersection between the germline and the tumor. I mean, it's just a really exciting time in colorectal cancer uh, for sure. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone for coming on today and sharing your, your hour with us on a Monday morning. I know it's a really busy time and we had a, a really great turnout. So hopefully everyone took something away that they can bring back to their patients today. So, and thanks, Shelly, for running the chat. Thanks again. <laughs> thanks again, Bill. And thanks again, TJ. Great. You too, yeah, Whitney. No, that was great. Bye. Thanks all. <laughs>